Why don't I pray, and then I'll do my best to try and explain this very, very strange passage. So, Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, would we, would we get a glimpse of your, your power and your might and your majesty and your glory uh, as we look at it today? Uh, please speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you remember high school? Okay, good. Um, I don't know if this is true for you, but do you remember how when you walked into school in the morning, it was, it was just loud. The volume of it was just so, un- like that, it was so unbelievably loud. Everyone talking and laughing and messing around and playing pranks on each other and lockers slamming and just the noise when you'd walk in was just unbelievable. Uh, you could always count on the volume of my high school being almost deafening, deafeningly loud, especially after the weekend at the, you know, the start of the day on a Monday morning. Uh, but there was one Monday morning I walked in expecting the noise, and despite walking into the cafeteria where we used to enter the building, being absolutely full of students as usual, there was a strange, shocking silence. No one talking, no one making a noise above maybe a faint whisper. And so I looked to find a friend to say, what? What's going on? And he told me what happened. One of our classmates was killed in a car crash the night before. And that was the reason for the strange silence. Sort of like that. But a shocking one. Now, where normally there was unstoppable noise, now there is a sobering, strange silence that grabs your attention like no other silence has grabbed your attention before. And that's where we left off in the book of Revelation last week. It finished with this very strange and sobering silence. And it was unlike anything in heaven before. And so it was meant to grab your attention. To cause you to stop. Because up to this point, if you've been reading Revelation, heaven had been a scene of loud praise and honor and worship and and exuberant glory and lightning. And it was loud. And then all of a sudden, it was silent. When Jesus opened the seventh seal of the scroll. And that's where we pick up the story today. But before we jump back in, it's worth doing a little bit of review. The entire book of Revelation is is a record of the vision that the Apostle John has when he meets Jesus Christ. John was exiled for preaching the gospel to this island called Patmos. And while he's there, he has this vision of the risen Jesus Christ who invites him. He says, come and peek into heaven. Come and see what's going on in heaven. And when you understand that, you'll understand better what's happening on earth. That's the whole book of Revelation. And what we're doing as we study is we're moving really quickly through it in order to see the the main thrust of the book rather than get lost in the details. And remember what we're talking about here is two overlapping realities. There's the visible world, the one that we live in, and then there's the unseen spiritual world. And it sort of works, I said last week, like the show Stranger Things, where there's the upside down, and then there's the world that they live in. And there's like a, a door that's open and the things that happen in the upside down start to affect the things that happen in the regular world. Do you remember this from the show? Well, that's sort of what the interaction between heaven and earth is like, except instead of being dark and scary and sticky, heaven is bright and glorious and joyful. 
And so after John falls on his face in front of Jesus and Jesus tells him not to be afraid, he gives him seven messages to seven churches. And remember that in the book of Revelation, the number seven means complete or whole. So seven of anything implies like a, like a whole set. We're talking about everything, if there's a seven. And the overall theme of the seven letters to the seven churches is this, that until Jesus returns, life will be hard for Christians. That's the message. Until Jesus returns, life will be hard for Christians. And sure, there'll be some good times, but overall, life on earth will be harder for Christians than for non-Christians. That's the overall theme of the seven letters. But there's a call that comes to those churches, and the call is to overcome the challenge. The call is to overcome the difficulty uh, and continue to love and to worship Christ and to tell the world about him in spite of all that they might face for being Christians. So that's the seven letters. But then, as we saw today in our reading, then it gets weird. It gets really weird. Because what John is seeing is like this, this picture, this heavenly picture of what is happening in heaven and on earth. And uh, it's, a, it's a series of very strange visions. And okay, we're going to try and show you just a, a very brief snippet of that video I've showed you a few times. Uh, that just gives you a summary of these four visions uh, that take place. So let's... Try and watch that video. Now, this is where the curtain gets pulled back. And now we see the next four sets of seven from the perspective of God's throne room in heaven. And each set of seven builds more and more hope for the Christian. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, and seven bowls. And these four visions are not so much one long linear progression of history or the future, one right after the other but are more like four different angles of the same event. Think of it like four cameras from four angles recording the same event. On a timeline, it looks something like this. Here's time, and here's the cross. Here's when Jesus will return. And between here and here is now. And these four sevens all happen somewhere along here. So those are the four sevens. All right, so there you go. That's, that's the whole middle part of the book of Revelation, those four sets of seven. And what we're looking at is a repetitive portrayal of the kinds of things that have happened in history, that are happening now, and that will happen in the future until Christ returns. And so all of them are meant to be a picture of the kinds of things that happen in our world. Now, hopefully that catches us up at least a little bit. So let's come back to our passage then for this week. And remember that it starts out with a strange, sobering silence in heaven. And if you remember last week, the reason that it's quiet in heaven is so that God can hear our prayers. Heaven stands silent to hear your prayers. And in order to give time for those who have previously rejected Christ to come to him. And so there's a pause. And not only does this strange silence stand in contrast to what's been going on in heaven previous to this in chapters 4 to 7. But it stands in stark contrast to the world we live in today. We live in a noisy world. Extremely noisy world. 
It seems that every person, every company, every politician, every supporter of any particular agenda, every influencer, every celebrity, every restaurant, every clothing company, shoe company, makeup company, hair loss solution, educational institution, news source, coffee company, has an urgent message for you. Doesn't it feel that way? Everything is urgent. Everything is loud. Everything is shouting at you. We are constantly surrounded by noise from our phones, our computers, our tablets, our TVs, even our watches are yelling at us. Everyone talking at once at the top of their voice. Look at me. Listen to me. Pay attention to me. But here's the thing. None of them are listening back. None of them take the time to hear our concerns, to hear our worries, to hear our sorrows, our joys. But what this text shows us is that God listens. He not only speaks to us, but he listens to us and he answers us. This is why heaven stands silent in order for God, your Heavenly Father, to hear your prayers. And what happens in chapters 8 to 11 is, in a sense, a picture of what God does to answer our prayers. That's what the seven trumpets show us. And remember what the book of Revelation leads us to do is to be able to sing or to say hallelujah. In other words, to praise God no matter what our circumstances are. And so here's the structure of these seven trumpets. Uh, you can, there you go. Um, there's a cleansing of the earth. That's the first four trumpets. And then there's a conquering of God's enemies. That's trumpets five to six. And then there's a coming of God's eternal reign. And that's trumpet number seven. If you want to see it on our timeline, it looks like this. Now, what we're talking about when we talk about these seven trumpets is, in fact, it, it's a judgment. And these are judgments of God against his enemies. Those who promote injustice, those who do harm to their neighbor, those who take advantage of the weak. And of course, because of the type of literature it is, it's filled with all sorts of vivid pictures. It's why you have, you know, locusts with breastplates of iron and teeth like lions. But did you notice, did you notice that after the seven angels are sort of called before the throne and they're given the trumpets. Did you notice they don't blow them right away? Right in between, there's a little scene with a golden bowl of incense. Did you notice it? The seven angels assemble, they're given the trumpets, but they don't blow them. And what you get in between the assembly of the seven angels and the blowing of their trumpets is an extremely vivid picture of all the prayers of lament, and petition that have been prayed for all that is wrong, all that is unrighteous, all that is unjust, all the prayers for God to do something about it are gathered up and put in this censer with incense. In case you're wondering what a censer looks like, it looks like this. And what you read in verses 3 to 5 is this picture of those prayers making their way to God's ears. Actually, in this case, they're making their way to his nostrils. And God is answering them. And actually, nostrils is a good image because all through the Old Testament, 
The image of like expanding nostrils or flaming nostrils. You've heard that. What's that an image of? It's a picture of anger and wrath against sin and wrongdoing. And so all of our prayers for all the things that we're angry about, all the things that have broken in the world that we're asking God to do something about, they're gathered up, they're put in this bowl with incense and brought before the throne of God and they're lifted up and he smells them. Now, what's the point of that? Look what happens to your prayers. Look what happens to your prayers. They're gathered up. They're brought before God himself. And the smell of your prayers rises up before God into his nostrils. And of course, this is just an image. But it's a powerful image to say that your prayers do not bounce off the ceiling. Your prayers do not go unheard. They are carefully gathered up and brought before God himself, before the one who has all authority to act and answer those prayers. So when you pray, think about that. And then look what happens, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And of course, again, this is an image. But the image is meant to show you that your prayers, weak and feeble as they may seem, are answered with power and might and authority. And I guess what John is showing us here is the same truth that James taught us in James chapter 5, verse 16, where he says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what's happening to your prayers. Your prayers of lament and petition on behalf of the weak, the weary, the brokenhearted, the oppressed, those prayers are powerful and effective. And here's what I want us to glean from this image of our prayers being offered to God and him answering them. Uh, Those of you who were here back in April or May, I can't exactly remember when it was, but we looked at the last chapter of Ephesians where it talks about putting on the armor of God. Does some of you remember that? Well, what we saw was that the Apostle Paul says that the Christian is to put on the armor of God. And so he talks about a breastplate and a helmet and a belt and covers for your feet and a sword. But what we discovered is that every single one of those pieces of armor mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 is a defensive weapon. They're to protect you. They're protective. But remember, there was one offensive weapon that shows up. Do you remember what it was? Here it is, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Here's the offensive weapon. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And so prayer is our one offensive weapon against evil in our world. And what we get to see in Revelation 8 is what happens to those prayers. And look at how they're answered. With all the power of the creator himself, with all the justice of the one who himself is justice. And so think about it. Look at our city. You don't need to drive five blocks away from here. I mean, you do have to drive five blocks because this is kind of a posh neighborhood now. But you don't need to drive more than five blocks to see the effects of evil on our city. And I can even promise you that behind the doors of the really nice houses, you'll see the effects of evil in our city. 
Look at our world. You don't need to scroll through more than two news stories to see injustice, oppression, or harm being done to the weak and innocent in order that the strong and the guilty can gain more power. And so what are Christians supposed to do about that? Boy, it sounds so weak and feeble. And yet it's the most potent offensive weapon that we have. What are we supposed to do about it? Pray. Pray. Pray because look at what happens to your prayers. They are placed on a golden altar before God himself, who again, strange image, but he smells them and then answers them with all authority and might and strength. And so therefore then out of the silence of heaven, actions are prepared. Your prayers are mixed with the fires of heaven and returned to the earth. And so I don't know what else to tell you to do but to pray. That when you see injustice, when you see the strong oppressing the weak, when you see those in power taking advantage of those who have none, when you see abuse, when everything in our culture sets itself up as opposed to righteousness and morality, what do you do? You pray. That's the strongest action you can take according to Revelation chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 6. And of course, there are other passages in Scripture that explain that we should also act on behalf of the weak. So we should do what we can there too. But the force of Revelation 8 is that the most effective thing we can do in this broken world that we live in is to pray. Okay, the seven trumpets are then blasted. Uh, And the first four are lumped together. And I'm just going to tell you, this is all sort of Uneven. So I'm going to talk a lot about the first four and very briefly about five, six, and seven. Um, and by the way, so first we're going to talk about the cleansing of the earth, trumpets one to four. And by the way, a trumpet is actually, it's a very familiar biblical image. And so you might remember when we went through the book of Joshua, that when they took the city of Jericho, do you remember this? There were seven priests with seven horns, seven trumpets, who marched around the city for seven days. And on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And on the seventh time, the seven priests drew, blew the seven trumpets. Do you remember that? The trumpets also marked what the ancient Hebrews called the year of Jubilee, that after seven times seven years, they were to blow the trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. And for the next year, it was a time of liberty. All debts were canceled, slaves set free, land left uh, unfarmed in order for the farmers and the land to rest. And these are just two of the images of trumpets in the Old Testament, but did you notice they always come along with sevens? The images here are picking up on that rich Old Testament language. And these first four trumpets, they're meant to be viewed together. Uh, notice how quickly they come, like one right after the other. It moves so quickly, it's almost as if it all happens at once. And so the first trumpet sounds in 8-7, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth, A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned up. And then immediately, verse 8, the second angel sounds the second trumpet. And something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then verse 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet. And a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And then finally, just in this quick succession, the fourth trumpet blast, verse 12. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. 
A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Now, I hope you notice that none of these judgments uh, was on any, uh, any person. Like, no, no person was directly harmed. In other words, no person was harmed in the blowing of these trumpets. Put it that way. And all of it comes against creation itself. You know, so it was a third of the trees. It was all the green grass. It was a third of the sea and the creatures within it. It was a third of the rivers and springs. A third of the light of the sun, the moon, and the stars. So what's that a picture of? What's that a picture of? Well, it's a picture of the unraveling of all earthly securities. That whatever you might look to for strength in this world, be it in land, be it in commerce, that, by the way, is the picture of the ships on the sea, uh, be it in self-sufficiency, that's the image of a fresh spring. Wherever you find your earthly security, here's what this is saying, is that it will unravel. It's not strong enough. An earthquake shows us, a hurricane, a tornado, a storm, a famine, all of these are a way, get this, all of these are a way of God shouting to us in our pain that our earthly securities will always come up short one way or another. And we don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of this, but I do want to make two observations from these trumpet blasts. And the first is this. We often do everything we can to downplay the judgment of God. We often do We do everything we can to make light of judgment. We use every strategy we can come up with, every justification to avoid the realities of our own sin and our need for Christ. And in our culture today, we even make God out to be the villain. Last week, I was talking with a friend who's a biblical scholar in Chicago. about. We were talking about L.A. He's asking me what it's like here. And I was telling him that there's this trend here in L.A. to do something called virtue signaling. Have you heard of this? Virtue signaling is it's doing your best to let everyone around you know how virtuous you are. And so you, you can't do a good deed without letting everyone know you did a good deed. And now that's the most innocuous version of it. Like that's just, here it is on my, my social media. There's a more aggressive version of virtue signaling that means that you'll actively try and make other people feel guilty for not committing the same virtuous acts as you. And so they'll actually confront you and be like, well, why aren't you doing this alongside of me? Uh, Both versions are a way of creating a perception about yourself for others that you are a virtuous person. Both both ways of doing that, you want everyone to think that you're a virtuous person. And as I was talking about it with my friend, the biblical scholar, he said, well, you know, Ken, there's actually a deeper motive lying behind that than just being seen as virtuous. He said what he's observing in our culture is that everyone is attempting to pass what he called the purity test. That even in a time when we as a culture at large have canceled God, we've canceled mostly because we don't want to be morally accountable to him. He said we're still looking to be accepted for our moral purity. And now instead of trying to be accepted by God, we just want to be accepted by our peers. And so we're all still trying to pass the moral purity test. And what we ended up talking about is that apart from Christ, we'll never achieve moral purity. We will continue to exhaust ourselves because none of us is capable of the kind of moral purity that we're seeking as a culture. 
And so this is what happens when persons in the media who seem for all intents and purposes to be like a morally virtuous person today, everyone's like, isn't this person great? And then what happens? They get canceled when somebody, something they said or posted online years ago is found. In other words, even our most virtuous people, our most morally pure people in society, they can't pass the purity test. And if they can't, what about you? And this is the challenge of our cultural moment. That on the one hand, you must be virtuous. You must pass the purity test. But on the other hand, you know that deep inside, you aren't that virtuous. You aren't that morally pure. You know you can't pass the test. And so your only option, the only thing we're left with in our culture is to do virtue signaling. To do everything we can to present ourselves to the world as virtuous and hope that you're never found out. That is so exhausting. Are you exhausted from that? I promise you, your friends are exhausted from that. So is there hope then in these trumpet blasts? Well, you bet there is, because here's my second observation. The four trumpets are sounded in order to cause people to turn to Christ. They're sounded in order to cause you to turn to him. And of course, C.S. Lewis puts it best in his book, The Problem of Pain, when he says this. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt, pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil, it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel's soul. Now here's what's happening as these four trumpets are sounded throughout the age that we are currently living in. These trumpets are blowing right now. As God's judgment is being sounded, within the resounding sound of the trumpet is also the sound of God's mercy. Calling out for all to repent and to turn to Christ, planting the flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul, saying, he's shouting to you in your pain. Which means that within the rumbling sound of the earthquake, the howling wind of the hurricane is also the shouting of God himself calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. And what is it that God's shouting to you in your pain? What is he screaming at you through your pain? He's saying saying this. You don't have to pass the purity test. Because Christ already passed it. He lived the pure, virtuous life that you can't live. And yet he faced the judgment of God that you deserve for your impure, non-virtuous life. That's the Christian gospel in a nutshell. Is that you'll never pass the purity test, but Jesus Christ did it. And if you turn to him, if you put your faith in him, that means he gives you his righteousness. And then you can pass the purity test. Then you're free from having to show off your virtue to everyone else. Because Jesus Christ stands before the Father and he says, 
This is my brother. This is my sister. And that's the Christian gospel. But of course, in our text and largely in our culture today, no one's listening to this. So look at the image that comes in chapter 8, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. In other words, if you won't listen to a bloody hailstorm, if you won't listen to a fire the size of a mountain crashing into the sea, if you won't listen to a star falling from the sky, and if you won't listen to the sun, moon, and stars, maybe, just maybe, you'll listen to a talking eagle. And either way, God is shouting to you to receive mercy. And so the question we're left with then is, are you listening? Well, then comes the next two trumpet blasts. And like I said, these ones are going to move much quicker. And in the next two trumpet blasts, we find the conquering of God's enemies. And what comes next in chapter 9 is a vivid explanation of the judgment of God's enemies on earth, meted out, ironically, through the devil himself. Now, the picture of the locusts and their king is of the demonic activity that is hiding behind the wars and the attacks of terror that we see on the news. And their king is the devil himself. But there's only really two things we have time to pause and see here in chapter 9. And the first is in verses 4 and 5. So look at chapter 9, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And there's a couple things we need to see here. One is that those who are in Christ, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, who the Bible talks about, they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. They will not be harmed in this particular judgment. And along with that, in verse 5, when the fifth trumpet sounds, those who are still rejecting Christ, notice this, they're only being tormented, not killed. In other words, for them, for those who haven't turned to Christ yet, what it's saying is, there's time. He's still in his mercy giving time to repent and turn to Christ. Okay, hold on to that, because then the sixth trumpet is sounded, and things are even worse when that one's sounded. In other words, God is shouting even louder in our pain. And yet, verse 20, we're still too stubborn to seek mercy. Look at chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And here's all I have time to say on this. Don't delay. Don't wait much longer to bring your brokenness before Christ, to repent, to turn to him. Don't delay. Because what this text is saying is that stubbornness leads to judgment in the end. And if, by the way, you're already a Christian, you've already turned to Christ, then, then listen to this. Don't delay. Don't wait much longer to tell your friends, to tell your family, 
to invite them to know Christ. Okay, we have to wrap this up now. Here's the seventh trumpet, and it marks the coming of God's reign. Now, in between the sixth and seventh trumpet, there's this long interlude in chapter 10 and most of chapter 11. I'm skipping over all of that. We don't have time to dig into it. But what I will say is the point of chapter 10 and most of chapter 11, this little interlude, is to show once again the patience of God for people to turn to him. Because when the seventh trumpet is sounded, that's the end of time. Uh, You can see it again on our timeline here. Number seven happens at the end of now when Christ returns. And we find the seventh trumpet then tucked away at the, in the last little bit of chapter 11, starting in verse 15. And what we find there is answered prayers. Remember where we started with heaven standing silent to receive the prayers of God's people and an angel bringing the prayers before God. And now with the seventh trumpet blast, we see the answers to those prayers. So take a look at this. The faithful people who have prayed their prayers of lament and petition to the Lord, they now find their prayers answered. Those who have prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now learn in verse 15. Look at this, 1115. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And then those in heaven pray prayers of thanksgiving, saying in verse 17, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And did you notice that we even, I think, prayed it in our liturgy already. We're used to saying the one uh, who is and who was and who is to come, but now he's come. And so now it's just who is and who was. And what we see in verse 19, the temple is, is opened and there are now loud sounds of victory, more thunder and earthquakes. And these are now sounds of victory. But not only that, we see in verse 19 that the Ark of the Covenant makes an appearance. Apparently, Indiana Jones was never going to find it because it's in the temple in heaven. And so, yes, it is that Ark of the Covenant. But that Ark of the Covenant is a picture, if you remember, of the presence of God. That wherever the ark is, is God's very presence. And what this is pointing to is that at the end of time, at the grand opening of the new heavens and the new earth, where it says at the end of Revelation that God will dwell with his people, that's what this is pointing to. And at the end of Revelation, it says this in, in chapter 21, verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And it's with the seventh trumpet blast that this becomes reality. The two realms that we've been talking about, heaven and earth, now completely overlap into one reality. Now what this is saying is, those prayers that you've prayed with tears in your eyes or with deep longing in your heart, the prayers prayed with wounded soul, 
those prayers have made it up to God's very presence, and the ultimate, ultimately he answers your prayers. The ultimate answer to those prayers, what we find out here, is him. It's God himself. That one day you will dwell in his presence, and his very presence will remove death, mourning, crying, and pain. And so I'm just going to leave us where we started and only encourage you to pray. To pray with the confidence that your prayers make it to heaven and are presented before your heavenly Father who hears them and answers them. To pray knowing that heaven stands silent in order to hear you pray. And to pray knowing that the ultimate answer to your prayers is to be in his presence for eternity. And so when you pray, this is, this is going to change my prayer forever. I want to picture a golden bowl of incense on the throne of God and him smelling my prayers. That's what's happening when you pray. Picture that. Hold on to that biblical image of what your prayers look like and smell like in heaven. And if you can pray that way, then you can do what Jesus called all the churches to do at the start of Revelation. It, it means you can overcome. It means you can live through the trial. It means you can live through the persecution and the challenge and the brokenness. It means you can say hallelujah in any circumstance because you know your prayers are heard and are being answered and will be answered. So to that end, I'm going to pray. Our Father, we... We love this image that you smell our prayers, that they make their way to you. And you take our feeble words and the groanings of our heart and you mix them with fire from your altar and you fling them back down to the earth as a powerful answer. And so, Lord, we bring to you the brokenness of our world. We bring to you the oppression in our world. We bring to you the hurt and the crying and the pain in our own lives and the lives of others. And we humbly ask that you would act, that you would bring justice, that you would bring mercy, that you would bring grace in our time of need. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.